Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We've got a really good episode for you today, as we always, always do. This is special, though. We have an awesome guest. Yeah, it's really special for me because, actually, I was trying to figure out when I first heard about Elspeth Beard, who is the first woman from the United Kingdom to ever circumvent the globe on a motorcycle. And she did this in the early 80s, in her early 20s. It is a inspiring story, especially for someone like me who loves to explore knowing that someone took that risk at that age at that time right and and went on that huge adventure makes everything i do seem like peanuts right it's like child's play <laughs> i've got my phone I, I rarely never have service there's gas stations all over the place i can look up exactly where i am at any given time right it's hard to even comprehend you it, know how it is it's a, it's a monumental story and it's really really inspiring to me and she's going to be on the podcast a little bit later she's calling in from england from her water tower right we that, didn't know this until kind of after the fact or at least i didn't yeah yeah so she's got a water tower that she converted and i found a picture of it on her instagram wow you should really go you check say it water out water tower and i picture like a modern you know aluminum thing no but it's like a stone tower it, it looks like a castle it looks like the spire of a castle basically or yeah. the whole castle rotunda like the so whole, looks, regardless you know what it looks like what's it that? looks like the rook from a chessboard. Yeah, I suppose it does. It looks exactly like a yeah, rook from right. a chessboard. It is, it's really cool. Anyway, she's a fascinating individual. I really, really enjoyed talking with her. So we've got her interview coming right up. Um, she wrote a book, and it's called The uh, the Lone Rider, The First British Woman to Motorcycle Around the World. And it's got, it's you know, it's a pretty good-sized book, well-documented trip. I haven't gotten through all of it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanted to do is read from the prologue a little bit for you guys. It's a couple pages, but I think it really sets the table for the interview and for the book, which you should be buying because it's really, really <laughs> good. Um, so the book is called Lone Rider by Elspeth Beard. I'm just going to read a little bit from the prologue. So this is um, written in southern Thailand, April 10th, 1984. For five long, hot, tiring days, I'd ridden towards the equator, skimming the Burmese border on the skinny section of the Thai Peninsula, somewhere between the lazy beaches of the south and bustling Bangkok and the plains to the north. I had to be in Penang in three days to catch a cargo ship across the Bay of Bengal to Madras. I had ridden up the Thai-Burma border in search of a route through India and on to Nepal. Until now, I'd travel rich in time, but poor in money. Now, for the first time, I had a deadline and a direct overland route that promised considerable savings of both when they were running out fast. Largely ignorant of what might lie ahead, I'd arrived at the border having heard conflicting reports about a possible route through Burma, as Myanmar was then known. But as I stood gazing at Burma, hazy in the distance, on that sweaty, overcast afternoon, I didn't need my makeshift map to tell me that the roadblock in front of me marked more than the end of this particular road. I'd run out of road and options. With nowhere else to go, I began the long journey to Penang in Malaysia, more than 1,200 sticky miles ahead. It was for times like this that I loved riding my bike. Those moments when all thoughts of the past and future slipped away, and I existed entirely in the present— the miles rolling past beneath the wheels of my big BMW, the morning light clear and golden, throwing shadow bands across the road as I carved my way around the world. As I rode and the days and miles ticked past, I spoke to my bike, cajoling her with promises of an oil change and a clean air filter if she got me to Penang in time. It was the kind of bargain I'd struck many times since leaving London nearly 18 months earlier. With a couple of bags over my shoulder, the takings of a summer's pub work in my pocket and yearnings for my ex-boyfriend in my heart, I departed carrying a widely ridiculed dream of riding a motorcycle right around the globe, something which, to my knowledge, 
no woman and few men had ever done. I treated my nine-year-old BMW R66 well, cared for my darling as I would any old lady with too many miles on the clock. More than 18,000 miles together, another 15,000 to go, just me and my girl. Five nights earlier, I'd been in Chiang Rai, as far north as most travelers ventured in Southeast Asia in 1983. There, in the Golden Triangle of Laos, Burma, and Northern Thailand, the mountain pastures were dominated by opium poppy growing and heroin production, scaring off most outsiders. But not me. On that golden southern Thai morning, I was riding on a small, dusty country road between fields a few miles from the main highway that carried all the traffic up the peninsula from Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia to Bangkok. My speed was creeping towards 60 miles per hour. Too fast, and I knew it. But as on every previous day, I'd convinced myself that I was safe. So safe, I'd capitulated to the heat by removing my gloves. We got away with it yesterday, I said to my girl, even though we'd shared dozens of near misses already. That's when I hit the dog. A flash of brown and white fur, two black eyes filled with terror, a thud. I didn't even break. It appeared from nowhere and disappeared immediately. All I saw was a blurred collision of metal and hair. A dark green truck, stacked high with bailed goods, had been approaching on the opposite carriageway, blocking my view of the far side of the road. As it passed, the dog shot out from behind it into my path. It never stood a chance, but it was big enough. A standard-issue Thai mongrel the size of a German shepherd to knock me clean off my bike. I smacked into the tarmac. My breath catapulted out of me and everything slipped into slow motion as I slid on my back across the road, watching my bike trundle upright and riderless ahead of me into a ditch and out of sight. Dazed and breathless, I pushed myself up and stumbled to my feet, my ears ringing as I looked around for some remains of the dog. Nothing. My bike, however, was wedged against a tree in the ditch. My chances of reaching that boat in time no longer looked so good. I rushed over to my BMW, wanting to pull her free. I grabbed her front wheel, which was jammed against the tree, clasping the trunk between her front tire and her exhaust outlets. I tugged as hard as I could. That's when the adrenaline wore off, and I suddenly felt the pain. My hands, red raw, the skin scraped off both my palms were bleeding and screamed sore. I tried to ignore it, tried to tug again at the front of the wheel, but the pain was too much. I stopped and looked at myself properly for the first time. My trousers were badly torn. My thighs grazed, my right foot smashed up, but my leather jacket had saved my arms and shoulders. Thank God I'd been wearing my helmet. I was cut and bruised and smashed about with a bike I feared was wrecked at a time long before the advent of mobile phones, internet, and email. I was 24 years old, a young architecture graduate with little experience of the world and hardly any money in my pocket. I was alone, a thousand miles from anyone I knew in a country whose language I didn't speak and couldn't read on a road I didn't know. Wow. So that's the prologue to the book, which goes on for many, quite, some time. quite some time. And there's there's some photos in the middle, which are which are great. And uh, it's a really, really, really inspiring story for it's just it's a young, beautiful, heartbroken woman going on a trip around the world on a bike that isn't made for it with experience. <laughs> she had no experience. Right. Off roading of any kind. And she went for it. This is like this is the the pinnacle of the beacon of what every human being should do or aspire to be in, in, in some form, 
right? Right. I mean, you don't have just to, the concept of exploring the concept of exploring, which I harp on about at right. least once every other episode, if not every episode that we do <laughs> is to get out and explore. So, um, you know, it, it's funny if I can say while you were reading that, I looked down at my palms because I know that feeling that she's explaining, probably not to that degree, mind you. Right. But the only time, well, not the only time of a dog? I did not <laughs> No, but I did low slide a motorcycle as it's going around a sandy corner. I was only Ooh. going probably 10 or 15, which right. is not 60 on gravel. Yeah. But it was enough where I didn't have my gloves on. I was right by home, like test Ooh. riding a bike that I had just cafeed out. Right. And so I low slided on some sand. I put my palm down to catch me. It's instinct. Yeah. You yeah. shouldn't do that on a motorcycle though. No. Because, and it's the same thing. It was adrenaline. I get up, my bike, the front forks are twisted. So I like put it between my knees, you know, and straighten it out and ride home. And only after I had gotten home did I realize my hands were dripping blood all over my pants. Oh, man. Because they were just scuffed. What, what do they say? They say something along the lines of every 10 miles an hour is one millimeter of skin ground off. Oof. Or something like that when you fall and touch the ground. I haven't heard that. Yeah, it was some, so, yeah, something I had, like I had that. at least a millimeter and a half gone. <laughs> I can tell you that. I've wiped out. I've only ridden one motorcycle okay and it was a bad experience it was my buddy's dirt bike that we got yeah. going and it was in his garage we took we started fluid finally got the thing running i was probably 13 okay and we're out like riding this thing around and i had like cut off jean shorts on oh yeah barefoot yeah that's it i mean i'm <laughs> i'm 12 13 i have no no my brain isn't developed yet so i'm thinking no fear it right? i wiped out in the gravel and I had to have gravel like picked out of my oh, skin. Yeah. It was the worst. I had the worst rash on my right side Oof. of my body, and my, like the back of my arms and elbows and like the back of my thigh and stuff. And it wasn't even like a bad wipeout. No. But when you're not wearing, if it's just skin getting thrown into gravel at 10, 12, 15 miles an hour. Yeah. It's no, no good. good. So before we get to that amazing interview with Elspeth, though, we have to take a moment to recognize our sponsor, Renline. We've partnered with them, as you know, to offer an awesome discount. All their products are extremely high quality and beautifully machined, and that really is illustrated by the fact that they guarantee every single product that leaves their door that they create. You can get Renline design performance parts for your European cars, including, of course, Porsche. They've been in business for over 20 years and have developed over 6,000 products to meet the needs of Porsche enthusiasts. And as I've mentioned before, what really sets Renline apart is they aren't just another distributor. All their products are designed and engineered in-house right there in Vermont. So be sure to check them out on Renline.com and use the code OVERCREST to get 5% off your next order, along with free shipping on orders over $250. All right. Many thanks to Renline for supporting the show. And thanks to our Patreons for supporting the show as well. Absolutely. We've more and more of those guys coming on board every every week. So we really appreciate that. So, all right. On to the interview with Elspeth. Uh, enjoy, everybody. Hello. Ms. Beard, it's Chris from Overcrest. How's it going? Oh, Chris. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Very good. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've spent the last probably week uh, digging into your life a little bit, so I feel like I've, I've, <laughs> I've already spent so much time with you. It's it's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you. So everybody listening obviously now knows that you're from England just by listening to your voice, but where in, where in England are you now? What are you up to? Uh, well, I live uh, now. I live about thirty-five miles, kind of south uh, west of London. Um, but I, you know, I lived in London for the first thirty-five years of my life. So, um, so you lived in London for well, when you were younger. What was it like there when you were when you were younger? What was the what was it? What did it feel like? 
Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, London then is very was a very I don't know far more easygoing and relaxed place than it is now, or maybe I'm just a little bit older. I don't know, um, but uh, it was great. I mean, we had a house, uh, a large uh, house, right in the centre of uh, of London, because uh, both my parents were doctors, um, and my dad had his private practice uh, sort of at the house. Uh, so I kind of probably had a fair, I mean, there weren't many people who actually lived in central London then because most people just went there to work. So it was quite unusual uh, to have a sort of family house uh, right in the, you know, centre of, of, you know, of, of London. So it, it was a little bit unusual, I suppose. And it was... Um, I mean, I didn't have any friends in London at all because there was nobody, because there were no other kids to meet, you know. So it was quite a lonely, uh, lonely existence, I suppose, in a way. But uh, I mean, I was sent off to boarding school when I was ten, so I would then just come back. Uh, was that fairly to, common to get sent off to boarding school back then? Um, fairly common. Um, I mean, I think it just suited, you know, because both my parents worked and it was obviously just easier and and they felt it was the best, you know, I was going to get the best education as well. So, um, I mean, t- being sent off at the age of 10 was quite young, but then my, my eldest sister had been sent off the year before so you knew it was coming i was <laughs> kind of sent to the same school and so i had sort of her slightly there to look after me but um i mean it was a little bit young uh, most people got sent off to school if you did go to boarding school at about kind of 12 or you know so at this at this age did you kind of was it like was it a spark of adventure or was it a spark of motoring that kind of started this for you? I mean, were you really into like the thought of doing adventures and exploring or were you really drawn to like motorcycles and motoring and cars and stuff like that? Um, I think it was something I just sort of fell in, into in a, sort of, in a sort of very unplanned way. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually managed to get expelled from school. and um, <laughs> From the boarding and school? Going to, <laughs> yeah, from boarding school. <laughs> I'm sure your parents were pleased. <laughs> no, they were. They were. Oh yeah, they were really, really happy. Um, and so they sent me to uh, uh, somewhere in London to sort of finish off my A levels, which was the, the sort of final exams, which we do right at the end. And uh, and it was actually when I was at college in London that I I met this group of people who all rode rode bikes, and it was really that that got me into riding motorbikes. So Rick and Nick taught me how to ride a bike, uh, and then I just needed um, you know some transport to to you know just get, get around, around London. London. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and. Um, and so a friend of mine, Simon, sold me his little Yamaha YB100, and that was my first bike. And it was just, and literally, I saw it as just a cheap and uh, easy and efficient way of getting around London. I didn't, I didn't see myself then as becoming, you know, uh, you know, really getting into motorbikes or, or, or that motorbikes were going to become such a sort of major or, or sort of important part of my life at all. Um, it was simply a way to get around London um, quickly and easily and cheaply. Did you find um, that I you think, started being like kind of like attracted to these other people that were into into the bikes? Did you start falling into the culture a little bit? 
I can't say I really did, to, to be honest with you. I've I've always, um, I mean, I never wore kind of, you know, like leather gear or anything like that. I would just wear my jeans and my ordinary clothes and a coat. I well, mean, they didn't I make didn't... anything for women back then, right? I mean, there was no motorcycle <laughs> clothes for women. You had to wear, if you wanted to wear motorcycle gear as a girl, you had to wear guy stuff. I know, I know. Well, when I left on my trip, all my gear was stuff for it made made for you know for for guys. It wasn't. Uh, but even I mean, I'm, I mean, I could have worn. I mean, as I got, you know, after my uh, after the you know the Yamaha, I then bought a uh, a two fifty Honda. And I think probably when I bought my 250 Honda, because I started to go a little bit faster on that, and I got a little bit colder, and I got a bit wetter. <laughs> so I think then I did actually buy myself like a bell staff, uh, but that was, you know, it was all big and baggy and uncomfortable. Um, so I think then I started to buy sort of bike gear. Um, but I never, I wasn't really into the whole image of riding a motorbike. It was more, I just enjoyed riding a bike. Hmm. I didn't know if you, you know, being kicked out of boarding school, if you had kind of like that rebellious streak in you that, you know, goes along with the counterculture of motorcycles and that whole image. Well, I, I never really liked being told what to do. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be a recurring theme. I know. And if anybody told me that I couldn't do something, that was like, you know, a red flag to a bull. And it was just kind of, that's what I'm going to do now. So, um, and I and I don't know where that kind of came from, really. I just I just hated being told what I could and couldn't do. So, um, what was your what was your first adventure that kind of planted the seed for everything that would come later? What sparked your interest in it? Um, I don't. Well, probably. I mean, I started off doing 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 small trips. So I went around to Scotland for two weeks, and I went around to Ireland for a couple of weeks. Then I went around Europe for, I don't know, six, six So who was convincing you to do this stuff? I mean, you obviously didn't just I pick just up and wanted, go, was it? Or, yeah, or did you? I just wanted to travel. And I just wanted, because by this stage, I'd got my BMWs at 600. And I think it was buying that bike. I suddenly realized, you know, the traveling potential of a motorbike. You know, you could actually cover, you know, reasonable distances and um and i think it was really that bike that that started to make me realize and then i so then i did scotland then i did ireland and every time i kind of pushed a little bit further and and then i did did europe and then in the summer of 81 i uh flew out to la and i bought an old 75 uh, 75 stroke five and i rode it across to the east coast and um and I think it was probably on that trip when I was riding, I don't know, the open roads of Arizona or New Mexico or something. And I was thinking, my God, wouldn't it be amazing if you could actually ride a motorbike all around the world? And I think that's probably when the thought came into my mind. But I didn't then think I'd ever do it. It was just one of these sort of slightly crazy ideas that you have but wow. you never imagined that you'll actually do it, if you know what I mean. So, um, were, were all of these early trips of yours solo then, or did you ever go on trips with people? Um, the first one, Scotland was on my own. Ireland was half on my own. So I went over with a friend of mine, Mike, 
And then he went home halfway through, and I finished and I finished off on my own. But then I met this Australian guy, um, and we travelled together for a few days. And then I came back on my own. Europe, I went with a friend of mine, Rick, who was on his Norton. Um, and in America, I because my brother was working in New Zealand, so he we met in 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 um, LA and we rode across America, uh, sort of two up on the BMW. So oh, wow. it was sort of combined with people and bits on my own. So, but I kind of realised that I was okay on my own, and I kind of realised I could. You know, I didn't mind being on my own. Um, so take us back to like 1981, 1982. You're like, I think you're like 23, 23 years old. So right before you left, what is what's going on in your life at this time? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, I've been doing my first uh, three years architecture, so uh, which is my BA, Bachelor of Architecture. And when I was at um, when I was at uni, I met and fell in love with this guy called Alex, and he kind of finished our relationship about three months before my finals. So this was in early '82, and um, and as a kind and he of just he just left you a letter like, bye. Yeah. He just left me a letter. Well, actually, Ouch. he left me two letters, but I found the other one off. A version <laughs> one and version two. <laughs> He left me a letter, which was, but you know, I was absolutely heartbroken. I really was, and I mean, I was so in love with him, and I was completely heart heartbroken. And so, I found it really hard to work. Um, Leaving a letter and breaking up by letter is that the equivalent? Is that worse than breaking up by email today? Do you think, Chris? Is that the no, same? <laughs> I think it's. I think it's better. I think. I think a letter, especially handwritten letter, yeah, I suppose. It's, it's one step down from doing it in person, and maybe one step above doing it over the phone. I think. Oh, I agree. <laughs> okay. I agree. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> did the, did the heartbreak, um, were you, did that kind of, was that the tipping point that pushed you over the edge to just, I got to get out of here? It probably was. It probably was. I mean, I think uh, I can't say that when I received his letter, I thought right now I'm going to ride, ride my bike around the world. I think it was, you know, obviously I, I was trying to deal with it and then I, I couldn't work. And then I, ended up with a really, really lousy degree because I couldn't really work. So I and and I think it was really the summer of that year when um I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know whether I should continue doing architecture or not. I was still feeling pretty un un unhappy. And I just I suppose I just needed to sort of escape. And um and so I thought, right I'm going to ride my motorbike around the world or try to ride my motorbike around the world. So people scoffed um, at you initially. I mean, they they were all over you, just like, oh, you can't do this. This is crazy. What was that like? How did you respond to that? I, well, I, did, I mean, I, at the time I found it, well, I mean, from my kind of friends and family, I sort of expected it from, from them, really. But I, I kind of hoped from the from the biking world, I might get a slightly better uh, kind of response. But in fact, it was far, far worse. But all that just kind of spurred me on and fired me up even more to, uh, you know, to make me even more de determined that I was going to, that I was going to do it and I was going to succeed and, and prove to all, all these people. Yeah. He like kept telling me, 
it can't be done, you'll never do it, you'll be back in three months, you know, all that. <laughs> that I, 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 I was constantly told. Um, I honestly don't think I'd even last three months, to be honest with you. <laughs> so that you if someone said, you're going to last three months, I would have been like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's coming. Um, so BMW gave you a, a polite decline for any kind of help or sponsorship or anything. But I read a quote from a, um, from Bike Magazine. Um, this is Dave Calderwood, editor of Bike Magazine. Dave Calderwood. Yeah, yeah. Dave Calderwood. He says, Dear Elspeth, Brecken, and, Brecken said he'd write this letter, but he can't because his tongue's jammed in his typewriter. Julian asks if you've got an eight foot tall husband who's also a karate expert. Mike has already formed the Elspeth Beard Appreciation Society, wants to know where in the world you're going to be so we can get there first. Me, I'd like to offer you a sponsorship around the world, but I think that'd be a waste and a shame for London. Best wishes. Um, what do you think he meant by a waste and a shame for London? What is this guy's deal, do you think? I don't, I, I never really, I assumed he meant uh, a waste of his time and money if he was going to give me any money because I would never do it. And a shame for London, I never really understood what he meant by that. I kind of assumed that it meant that I wasn't going to be like in London on my bike, but I, I didn't really get it, to be honest with you. Maybe he thought that you're, he would assume, he's assuming that you're going to fail, so maybe he thought that would show poorly for London. Um, I, I just don't understand. So your, maybe. your response maybe. was... You might be right. It's a shame for London because you wouldn't be there because you're traveling, maybe? Well, I, so <laughs> in no response, idea. you said, Brecken, don't bother getting your tongue out of your typewriter as I'm sure you wouldn't know what to do with it. And <laughs> that is an amazing yeah, response. Actually, That's about good a response as you can get. I actually started the letter saying, dear boys. <laughs> 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 Which was even better. <laughs> so have you heard from Dave since? Have you ever like revisited or talked to him afterward? Did well, he interestingly, he did actually send me a message on Messenger um, last year. I think it was shortly after my book came out. And uh, he sort of said, oh, apparently I wrote a... I wrote a letter to you back in the in the early 1980s or something, but I don't remember it. But um, if I did, then I'm sorry. Oh well, <laughs> so. well, good, good, good for him. So, um, so before you <laughs> so, left, what did you leave behind? What were your sacrifices? The things that you had to separate yourself from to to make the choice to leave. What you mean is physical things that I had. Anything mean, or... physical, emotional? Like, what were you leaving behind when you left? I actually felt as if I was leaving, uh, I actually felt incredibly free, as if I was leaving all my problems, my baggage, my, I don't know, I just felt as if I was completely going out on the world, or into the world on my own, and almost like on a clean, you know, with a clean slate. It's kind of hard, hard to explain, but... Well, you're leaving you your liberated, perhaps. Yeah, you're leaving your burdens behind. Yeah. That was the... I that's not much of a sacrifice. incredibly free, incredibly free, that I was completely on my own. You know, I was, I was completely... Because up until then, although, you know, my parents had always, uh, you know given us a lot of freedom while we were growing up. We all kind of lived in different parts of the house, but it was always sort of in, in the comfort. I always had the comfort of my 
my, you know, my family and my friends and my home. And I think leaving on my trip, I just let all that go. And I was completely and utterly on my own. And How did you get the money together good. to start the trip? I worked in a pub. I, I actually decided, because uh, I think I failed, or I didn't fail, but I did badly in my exams in the May, June. And so I worked from June till October uh, in a pub uh, behind a bar uh, from sort of 8 o'clock in the morning making all the food and everything. And then I'd serve behind the bar uh, until midnight. Um, and it nearly killed me. I mean, I was earning, you know, sort of, you know, the sort of basic, basic uh, wage. Um, but I saved, and I managed to save about two and a half thousand pounds. Um, and I decided, or I hoped that that would be enough to get me either to New Zealand or Australia, where hopefully I could, um, I could get a job and earn the money for the next leg of the trip. Because, you know, I, 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 I think even I knew at that time that if you wait until everything's perfect, till you've got the right money, you've got the you know the right bike, you've got you, you just never leave. And I think I just was so you know I just really wanted to go, um, so I just left with what money I I had. I think that's what people almost do now is because with all the resources that we have, you can plan out everything down to the minute with the internet and the mm. and Google and Google Maps. I mean, you can just you could really go crazy with planning. And I think that people lose a little bit of the magic of, of a journey at all when it's just overworked. I think that's very true. And I think what was, what, you know, what I, you know, I mean, a lot of what I learned on the trip about myself, about, about looking after myself and, and, and being self, you know, self reliant was that I, I, you know, because I had to, because I had no safety net at all, because I couldn't plan really anything. I mean, I had maps for some of the countries, not all of them. Um, And, you know, it really was an adventure. I mean, I really was having to sort stuff out on a sort of hourly basis, just just trying to, you know, I didn't know where I could get petrol or water or, or where I could sleep or where there was a hotel or a B&B or where I could camp. I just didn't have a clue. It was just going out completely into the unknown. And so it really was, uh, you know, a sort of real adventure. And I think now the fact that people can plan every, almost every minute of it, you know, they can plan where they eat, where they buy petrol, where they're going to stay, where they, you know, it's almost boring because it's, it's, um, because you are able to plan everything. Now. Well, there's, there's, I mean, there's an element obviously to all of this of danger and risk. And I think people go out of their way to mitigate that. And it almost kind of dulls things down a little bit. Um, Tell us a little bit about the bike that you ended up taking on this journey. Well, the bike, I mean, that was another sort of, I mean, I ended up buying, uh, I mean, I always, you know, always wanted to buy a BMW. I didn't really know much about them at all. Um, I just knew that they were well built. And at the time, certainly in England, they were probably the most expensive bike that you could buy. Um, I didn't buy a new one. I bought an old secondhand one. So it was... So when I left on my trip, the bike was already eight years old and already had 45,000 miles on it. So it was a fairly old bike when I started the journey, mainly because I couldn't afford to buy anything else. Um, I mean, the 
I mean, the choice was part because Alex knew somebody where he lived who was selling the BMW, and that's really why I ended up buying buying that that bike. I mean, I didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't any 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 more than that. I didn't, um, you know, do a huge huge amount of research into what would be the best bike because at the time when I bought the R sixty, I didn't imagine riding it around the world. I just I just wanted a bigger bike, and I just saw the BMW R sixty, really liked it, and so I bought it. And then it was a year later or two years later that I wanted to ride around the world. And it just happened to be that that's the bike that I had. So that's what I did it on. So did you have, um, in the pictures, I see that you have big aluminum crates on the back of the bike. What are you, how did you outfit the bike and what did you take with you when you left? Well, when I left, when I left the UK, I just had sort of soft luggage. So I had sort of throw over panniers and just a bag tied uh, on the back seat and a tank bag. That was it. And it was when I was in Sydney, Australia, that I met this uh, guy uh, who called John Todd. And he had ridden his bike, which is also BMW. Um, it's an R63 too, I think, from Sydney to uh, Europe um, about two or three years earlier. And John had made these uh, aluminium boxes for his bike, uh, literally from scratch. And he sort of convinced me that where that in the Far East and India and Pakistan and all the countries that I was going to, I needed to make myself some hard luggage. And of course, in those days, you couldn't buy uh, sort, of, sort of aluminium um, you know, luggage. Tourtech and all those companies didn't exist. <laughs> so if you wanted that, you had to make it yourself. So uh, John helped me um, make uh, the aluminium um, panniers and top box, literally from angled bits of aluminium and sheet of al- sheets of right. aluminium, which I just wrapped around it and pop, pop, you know, riveted the whole thing. And it took me three months to to make them. Um, what did you keep in there? Were, what did I you mean, have generally with you at all times? Well, my. I mean, I would say I'd probably say about a third of my a third of my luggage was for my bike, <laughs> sort of tools, spares, oil. Um, I carried petrol in certain when I was, you know, riding across Australia. I, I carried spare petrol, water. Uh, I had very few few clothes. Uh, I had my ta- my my tent, my sleeping bag. Um, in my tank bag, I had all my camera stuff and my passport and all my uh, all my valuables was in my tank bag, and that was it really. Um, and I had a first aid kit, um, rolls of film for my camera. I don't know. I mean, I can't really remember. I, that's probably a lot. My point is that I think that's probably a lot less than people bring with them today on <laughs> on far more capable machines. I'm sure it is, but people take far too much luggage today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think bikes are far too big as well. I don't think bikes need to be nearly as huge. Well, I'm I'm, I'm five foot eight, and most bikes that I sit on, I I'm on my tiptoes already. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, they have this whole thing that you have to be. Oh, it's all for you know for sort of ground clearance. Well, I mean, my R60 is about five inches off the ground and I never hit hit anything. You know, it's just... So you're talking about Australia. Um, it's 
you know, I've, I actually put up a map that I wanted to drive across Australia a few weeks ago. And my buddy that lives in Brisbane was like, dude, you're going to die. What are you doing? You can't drive across the Northern Territory. There's nothing there. And my wife was like, well, you're going to get murdered if you go there. A lot of people get murdered there. Anyway, so Australia is known to be really, really deadly. What was it like to ride what is basically a wasteland? Yeah, I mean, Australia, I have to say, I found one of the harshest uh, countries to ride through. And I think partly because I had, when I left Sydney, uh, for for some weird idea, I had in my mind that Australia was going to be kind of nice and and fairly easy and sort of riding into the sunset and it was all going to be, and actually it was absolute hell. Um, I found it incredibly, I mean, apart from the, you know, just the mileage, I mean, I was riding four, 500 miles a day, day after day after day. It was, it was the heat and the dust and the flies and the kangaroos and the road trains and the floods. It was just everything got kind of thrown at you. It was, it was so, so uh, hot and so tough. I was exhausted riding around Australia um and so i was you know i was quite glad to to i mean i, I kind of enjoy parts of it and and the outback is a you know there are parts of the outback it is quite a special place but um it's not it's not an easy country to travel so across so you're driving across you know the outback and there's like these little road houses did you stop at any of those well you had to stop at all of them because because the road houses in those days were about three or four hundred miles apart so i would i would just about get to them to fill up with with fuel so you'd ride for three or four hundred miles and then you would have to stop because you need fuel and water i imagine you like getting off your bike and walking in i'm imagining it like uh like the wild wild west where there's the little doors (laughs) the saloon doors the saloon doors i imagine you walking in and just like 30 men turning around and looking at you going who is this woman <laughs> that's exactly exactly what it was like um it was and, and i did find well i had this kind of mixing like i found certain places in the outback that's exactly the kind of reception that i got and they just couldn't you know they just couldn't understand what this person what what this woman was doing riding this strange motorbike with this aluminium contraption on the back in the middle of the outback you know they just they just and um but then i i did meet some incredibly helpful and friendly people in in the outback so it it really is a land of extremes you know in everything in climate in people in in everything it's a it really is a land of extremes so where was the first place that you really ran into where you where you were distinctly aware that you were a woman. Where did that come into play? Where you're like, whoa, this is not good. Or you were treated unfairly or anything like that. Because I think it's important to remember that in the early 80s, it's not 2019. It's a lot different than Mm -hmm. than it is now. Yeah, I mean, I think it it actually started pretty much from from when I left, you know, when I rode the bike out of New York um, heading heading north. And I think the very first time I, I stopped to buy... Um, you know, gas um, at, at the first station, and and you know because I left my my helmet on, basically I was just completely ignored, 
and they, they served everybody else and then other people would turn up and they served them and they just wouldn't serve me. And the minute I took my helmet off, I, yeah, that was even order. The minute I took my helmet off and they saw I was a woman, then I got served. And then they felt really, really bad that they'd treated me that way because, and I assumed because it was this sort of fairly anti-biker culture mm. maybe that was that was around in the early 80s uh, uh in in you know america um so and then i don't know and then i thought like, every country was different it really was um i mean i think i mean I, yeah i mean australia i found you know they were very sort of chauvinistic in the outback um and you'd get these snide comments and they wouldn't serve you and they wouldn't give you anything to drink. And it was all, I don't know, it was just weird. And I imagine but after I, 300 I, miles, you definitely want something to drink. <laughs> I know, but often I, I literally, I would have to go out and drink out of the drink from the outside tap of wow. water because they wouldn't serve me anything. You're kidding. They kind of ignored me. It was, it was very weird. Wow. That's bizarre. You know, and and speaking of the different people and countries you went to, forgive me, Elspeth, because I did not research you as much as Chris, but can you give our listeners just a really broad overview? What was your actual route here? Okay. So I I decided to head west. So So I shipped my bike across to New York. And the reason I did that was because of my limited funds. I knew I could get, having ridden across America the year before, I was fairly confident I could get to New Zealand or Australia on my two and a half thousand pounds. So from New York, I rode uh, rode up into Canada to Niagara Falls and down to uh, New Orleans and across to um, Los Angeles. Then I shipped my bike to Sydney, and while I was en route, I went to Hawaii, and then I went and I travelled around uh, North and South Island in New Zealand. I then rejoined my bike in Sydney, worked in Sydney for seven months. Then I rode around Australia, up the east coast, across the middle through the Northern Territory, Alice Springs, down to Port Augusta, and across to Perth in Western Australia. Then I shipped my bike to Singapore while I traveled overland uh, up through Indonesia. And I rejoined my bike in Singapore. And then I rode up through Malaysia and right up to northern Thailand. And then I tried to get through Burma, through to India, but I couldn't because the country was all closed. So I had to ride back down to Malaysia. And then I shipped my bike across to India. And then I rode from... Why wouldn't wouldn't they let you in? How do you close a country? All the land, all the land borders into Burma were just closed. It was just shut. It was just a closed country. Now, at this time, Um, were you realizing that um, traveling and adventuring and your exploring wasn't really time oriented anymore? You're just like, oh, well, I guess I'll just turn around because you didn't really have a deadline. You could just it didn't really matter. Right. I had time. The only limiting factor I had was my money. Time didn't time was irrelevant. The only limiting factor I had was my money. And that's why I always kept very good records of my fuel, my petrol costs, how much I spent on it, because my petrol, I knew, was a fixed cost. I knew I had roughly X thousand miles to get to go home, and that was going to cost me you know, a certain amount of money. Right. Because things like accommodation, like food... I could, I could, you know, I could save money. I could, you know, I could sleep out. I could sleep in a ditch. I could camp. 
but petrol was a cost I knew was a fixed cost. So did you do a lot of that? Was there a lot of just sleeping on the side of the road? Just, well, I guess this is where I'm going to stop tonight. Yeah, I mean, I, I slept, I, I mean, a lot of Australia, I just camped out in the outback. Uh, America, I camped probably half and half. Um, when I got to the Far East, it was, uh, I, I actually sent, sent my tent home uh, from um, Australia because it was so cheap, cheap to stay in places um, in the Far East and India as well. It just wasn't, wasn't worth camping, really. Sure. Um and there were just so many people in those countries. It was, I mean, it's fine if you're in, in the outback and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're not going to, you know, nobody's going to come along and uh, hassle you. But in the Far East, it just isn't like that. For you know, sure, for sure. So where, after you turned around somewhere. at Burma, where did you end up? So, yeah, so then I, so then I sh- shipped my bike across to India. Then I rode from uh, up, up to Kathmandu in Nepal, back into India, and then, the whole northern bit of India, I did Leh and Ladakh, which is absolutely stunning. And then I went into Pakistan, uh, through Iran, uh, Turkey, Greece, Yugoslavia, and back through Europe, back back to London. So in the early 80s, Westerners weren't really seen much in Iran, right? I mean, let alone a woman. And you went through there anyway. Why did you choose to go through Iran? I didn't have a choice. It was the, it was the only way through because north of Iran was Afghanistan. And a year before I was there, the Russians had invaded Afghanistan. So Afghanistan was closed. And I, there's still a war going on in Iran at the time, too, right? When there was a war going on, but it was the it was the lesser two evils. <laughs> wow! <laughs> you had to, I mean, I, I didn't have a choice. My only other choice was to ship my bike from Bombay to Africa, and then ride up across the Sahara. That was my other choice. That's the third evil, the desert, I <laughs> yeah. guess that would be. So I, I honestly, by the time I've been on the road for two, for nearly, for over two years by this stage, and my bike was barely holding itself together, the thought of riding it up through the Sahara, I, I, I'm not sure I, my bike or I would have made it, to be honest with you. So I reckon the war in Iraq was, was, was probably uh, easier. How were you received with. there? Did all go well? Well, it was an odd country, Iran, because they uh, it was it was about two years or three years after the Shah had been thrown out, and so they, uh, you know, the people were actually tried to be incredibly friendly, um, but I think they were just really scared and really frightened. Um, they they would, you know, if you went and sat down in a restaurant to have a cup of coffee, they'd kind of shoo you away, you know, out, go, 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 out, out, out. Um, and then they'd look around the street as if they, you know, they were really scared that somebody had seen a Westerner actually sit at one of their tables. Um, and then they'd get like this, and then they'd kind of take you in round the back, and you'd go in through the back door, and, and you'd end up having lunch with all their family, but nobody wow. could see it. So it was this very odd where they really wanted to be friendly and, and, and warm and welcoming, but they were just scared. Did the, um, did the authorities was, ever approach you while you were there? Well, it was very, because it was a war with Iraq at the time, there were lots of roadblocks and soldiers and tanks everywhere. And we had to stop literally every 50 miles. We had a roadblock. We had to stop, which is a bit. But apart from that, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, because we were only given like a seven-day visa. And we had to, I, I can't remember how many, hundreds of miles. But we were doing three or four hundred miles a day. 
Um, on, on what kind of roads are you doing three or four hundred <laughs> miles a day on this bike? The, the roads in Iran were absolutely fantastic. They were beautiful because they'd been built by the Americans all during that. <laughs> I think the Americans had, had, had sold the Shah all these amazing road building machinery. And, and so all the roads in Iran, they were like billiard tables. They wow. were absolutely beautiful. They were the best roads. Um, <laughs> that is not what anyway. I expected to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you have to deal with any of the any of the um, oppression that women feel in some of these countries? Did you? Because obviously, did you have to wear a hijab, or what were you doing at the well, time? Yeah, I mean, all I mean, I think every day, uh, all the time when I was in Iran, I just kept my helmet on all day. I just didn't take it off. Um, I just it just acted as a burqa. And it was just easier. Um, everybody assumed because I was riding a bike, because I'm quite tall, because I wore fairly unplattering clothes. Everybody assumed I was I was a I was a bloke anyway. And if I just by keeping the helmet on, it just made it easier. So I would literally just keep the helmet on all day. If I went to the market, I kept the helmet on. If I anything, I just kept my helmet on. How did that work and for border crossings, though? Night, Border crossings was a bit more tricky. Yeah, I would imagine that was a bit more tricky. Yeah, because obviously, you, because I, I would show them my my passport, like all the roadblocks. I would show them my passport, and of course, they'd open it and they'd see it, and they'd see the picture was a woman, and then they'd start to, and then they'd call all their mates out of the hut, you know, and they'd all come out, and then I had to take the helmet off, and oh, you know, it was a pretty tedious, um, you know, process every. 50 miles, but they were, I mean, most of them, they were kids, you know, like most of them were kind of 19, 20 year old kids, hmm. just been given guns. I mean, you know, it was, it was, I don't know, it was a, it was a very a strange country to travel through, it really was. <laughs> so Thailand was something that um, most people are warned about, but what was it really like riding there? Thailand was fantastic. I absolutely loved Thailand. Northern Thailand was amazing. And everybody, because when I was there, um, all Westerners were told uh, not to go to the to to the northern part of the country because it was full of bandits and there was lots of drug drug smuggling there as well at the time. And um, but I kind of ignored all of that and I went up there and I had the best time. The roads were fantastic. The people were great. Um, and it was it was empty because everybody had been scared away. So it was, <laughs> it was brilliant. And um, <laughs> So I actually love Thailand, and the people are so lovely there as well. They're so welcoming and so kind, and it was brilliant. So India and Nepal must have been pretty incredible. Just being in Nepal must have been crazy. That's Kathmandu and everything like that. Um, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, that's probably probably northern Thailand and Nepal were my two favorite countries, and the northern part of India, Leh and Ladakh. They were my three uh, favorite places to travel. Um, I mean, again, I mean, the, the, the Nepalese people are incredibly kind and generous and welcoming. Um, the same as the Thai. I mean, it, it was, and, and the mountains, I, I, I mean, I'm a kind of mountain person. I like being high up. <laughs> so, um, you know, I do like, uh, I do like the fresh air and I do like being, so, so definitely northern Thailand and 
and the Himalayas were my favorite part of the whole of the whole trip. Now, from what I read, you met someone in, in Kathmandu, is that right? I did. I met this Dutch guy. Um, and that actually just shows how, I mean, he was the only other overland motorcyclist I met in two, in two and a half years. Wow. That just shows how different it was in those days and how unusual it was for people to to do these, these long overland trips, uh, you, know, you know, on a motorbike. Um, so Robert had um, emigrated to, to Australia, decided he didn't like it, sent all his stuff home and decided to ride his bike back to um, Holland. So, um, so we met in Kathmandu and then we met again or we arranged to meet later on in India because I wanted to do a different route uh, in India to what he wanted to do. So we met about, about six, six weeks later. Uh, near um, Agra uh, in India. And then from then on, we traveled uh, together um, back to Europe. Did you, I mean, was this something that you were fairly fond of? I mean, you were falling in love with this guy? I did fall in love with Robert, yes. We we had, yeah, we, (laughs) um, yeah, it was, it was, that was probably the highlight of my trip, actually. Um, That's quite the contrast from where you started. Yeah, I know. I kind of left left brokenhearted and 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 you know came came back in love with somebody. So that was good. Um, I think it was partly the the. I think it was the difficulties of travelling in India that kind of pulled us together. Really, um, I mean, in India, I found. Because the first, you know, the first two, two or three months, I was travelling on my own in India, and you know, I was such a, you know, a, you know, a sort of curiosity for everybody. You know, within within a few minutes, I'd have sort of fifty people around me, um, and it was this constant pressure of being followed and stared at the whole time. Um, it really started to wear me down, and I and, and when you're there, sort of on your own, having to deal with it, it's really really difficult. And I think it's you know because in those days they had never seen a BMW motorbike before, so all these Indians were looking at this extraordinary you know <laughs> bike with these two things sticking out the side. I would of the wager Indian. that a lot of them had never seen a a Western woman before, to be honest. No, no. Well, that, that was it. First of all, it, it was the bike. They looked at the bike and I thought, what the hell is that? Then it had all this sort of aluminium stuff like on the back, which they just couldn't work out at all. And then I took my helmet off and it was a woman riding. <laughs> and it was kind of, you know, their eyes were like out on stalks, you know, they, they, they just hadn't seen anything like it. And they just, and it's just constant all the time. Every time I stopped, I had and also, it was it was all men, you know. The, the, the streets you didn't see any women in those days. It was virtually ninety nine percent men, and so you would have I would have literally fifty men around me, just just crowding in to you know to get a better view, and um, <laughs> and it just it just oh it just drove me. Uh, I mean, so so certainly when I started traveling with with Robert, it was much much easier. Sure. Um, and I think because we both found India quite hard work, um, we it sort of pulled us, you know, and we were, you know, we, we sort of became a team sort of fighting, <laughs> just trying to survive every day. And um, But, yeah, and then we, yeah, so we had this very um, 
passionate um, sort of, yeah, it was great. It was, and then we got back to England, and, and that's a whole other story, what, what happened after that. <laughs> we'll save that for a different type of podcast. <laughs> I know, um, it's a different way. Yeah. yeah. So what did, you said before that your bike was barely holding together at this time. What were you, what was your thing, what did you have to do to keep this bike going this whole time? Uh, well, I think it was just like everything. I mean, the, the sort of electrics were a constant, constant uh, problem. You know, the ignition. Uh, I mean, I didn't have a headlight because I smashed the headlight, uh, and I didn't have. So uh, no wait, 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 wait. was out. <laughs> did you did you Sorry? end up replacing the headlight, or what did you end up doing? No headlights, no, no good. I think I think I just didn't ride at night, apart from a, a, a sort of stretch in Pakistan when we had to ride at night, and I just ha- had to ride using Robert's headlight. Um, because I hit this kid in India and it uh, and I smashed the headlight. What? Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, that's a whole other story. Um, what? Just so, on that note, what else did you run in? Did you run into anything else? I mean, over thirty-five thousand <laughs> okay. miles or kilometers. I mean, surely. <laughs> well, it wasn't that bad considering. So I did. So my first accident was in Australia, where I can't wield the bike. What happened? Wow. Uh, I I went into this really big pothole, and uh, and the front wheel got kind of jammed in it, and then the whole back just flipped over, and I cartwheeled it down the down. I mean, it, it was on some dirt road out in Queensland somewhere, and the ambulance had to come 190 miles to pick me up. So what? it really was in the middle of nowhere. So um, what injuries I, did you sustain? I, well, I landed on my head, so I had concussion, but I have no memory of the accident, even to this day. Wow. So it wiped out my memory about, about two or three days before the accident and the accident, and all I can remember is waking up in hospital. And even to wow. this day, I have no memory of it at all. But at the time, fortunately, I had just literally two days beforehand met up with this other motorcycle uh, with this English guy and this Kiwi, uh, as um, uh, you know, riding a pillion, and they were riding about 50, 50 yards or a hundred yards behind me, so they saw the whole thing. And had had I not been travelling with them, I probably wouldn't be here now, because wow. it literally was the middle of nowhere, and I just would have been lying on the side of the road and probably just died. And I think it's important so for people to understand that you didn't. When you started this trip, you didn't really have off-roading experience, I and mean, you weren't just like this. I, you had none. I'd never ridden. I'd, I'd never ridden off-road until I got to Australia. Wow. Never. Did you? I think, I, was and, that and the and only the injury that you, you sustained throughout the whole trip, or were there other issues that you? Well, no. So then, so then in Thailand, when I when I was riding down to catch the boat to India, I hit this dog and I broke my toe and my boxes were all smashed up and I was fairly I, I was I was fairly kind of bruised and that one, but I, I was okay for that one. And then I hit a cow in India and ended up in the river. Wait a second. A <laughs> Wait a second. Okay? You survived hitting a cow. What happened with what happened? <laughs> well, the locals probably didn't like that either because cows are revered in, in India, are they not? Well, it was that I actually got into more trouble hitting the cow than I than I did hitting the kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up you dr- ended up in the river. Yeah, I just kind of clipped the back of this cow, and I ended up I had I went down this bank in it into the river. But it was fine. I mean, I mean, it was when I was traveling with Robert, so so Robert helped me pull the bike out of the river, and 
So, I mean, my bike was, you know, had quite a lot of sort of, you know, battle scars, should I say. And um, and by the time, I think that was all really, is cow kid. And I mean, <laughs> I, I think that was about it. I mean, I dropped it quite a lot. And I was in the desert when I was riding through 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 the desert of Western Pakistan. You know, that was just all like sand dunes and things. And there was no road. And, and I dropped it. But that was all fairly soft soft landing so that that wasn't too bad but i mean the bike you know it was had 75 80,000 miles on it it had been thrown up the road oh it caught fire in australia when i was riding across the nullarbor <laughs> just um, random fire it just well no yes it was like an electrical fire so all so the wiring loom the whole wiring loom just burnt out so there's always smoke coming up from my, under my tank so and, were uh, you stranded then well, I was. It's another weird, weird story. They, they uh, literally. I've been riding for hundreds and hundreds of miles of nothing in Australia, and um, and all this smoke started to come from the underside of my tank. So I kind of leapt off the bike anyway, and I shoved, you know, I shoved something up under the tank to try and douse the, you know, to sort of douse the smoke away or whatever. And um, and I looked around and I thought, what am I going to do? And I looked down the road and there was a little blue sign and it said auto electrician. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, no, all the places my bike, my, my bike chose to break down. It was in about sort of 250 yards of an auto electrician. The only one probably within, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And what was even more bizarre, so I wheeled my, my bike down to this auto electrician and the guy was from Wales, and his name was John. And we, so we got out my Haynes manual, and we made a wiring loom from scratch, oh. um, a completely new wiring loom from scratch. But unfortunately, he only had two colored wires, which is brown <laughs> and black. Oh, no. <laughs> so even, even to this day, and it's still on my bike today, and I still ride my bike, it's the wiring loom that John made in the Nullarbor in Australia, it's still on my bike today, but it, it, it makes trying to trace any electrical fault on that bike a complete nightmare because all <laughs> wow. I've got is brown and black wires. I, <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you, you're doing constant maintenance on the bike, right? Like throughout the whole trip, like um, did you have to do yeah. anything else other than replace the wiring loom and, you know, oil? Not really, but I was religiously good at looking after her. I was almost obsessional. I mean, I would change the oil every 3,000 miles without fail. Didn't matter where I was, I would change the oil. I would change the gearbox oil. I would change the bevel and the drive shaft oil. Absolutely religiously do it. Um, you had I would, to. You know, I, mean, I had to. It was. It's basically your, your life. It's your only way. It's your lifeline home at that point. Yeah, and I, you know, so I serviced it. I was really, really good at looking after her because I knew that if she was going to get me home, I had to look after her and I had to take care of her. So, but towards the end, it was, you know, like I, like the seal uh, on my, on my, from my bevel uh, had gone. So I was getting oil in the, in the, in my rear brake drum. So, so my back brakes were pretty useless. My front brakes were pretty useless. So I didn't have much brakes. My clutch uh, started to slip when I was in Pakistan. So I just learned the art of changing gear without using the clutch apart from to take off, um, to, you know, to start off with. Um, so I, I didn't ha have much of a clutch, didn't have brakes, didn't have a headlight. Um, 
and I and I rode it like that all the way from Pakistan back to you know Europe. Wow, geez, that's 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 incredible. Um, so what are some of the times on this trip where you you really felt fear? Was there anything that were like, okay, I'm scared. This is I didn't expect this. I think yeah. I mean, riding through the riding through the desert of Western Pakistan uh, was quite. That was probably the only place I felt it, it just had a very sort of unsafe edgy atmosphere I think because a lot because because the Russians had invaded Afghanistan so there were a lot of Afghani Afghanistani um, people who had sort of come across the border and they were just kind of roaming around the desert and they all had kind of rifles and knives and and it, it was it just felt fairly unsafe um so that bit was quite tricky, and there wasn't a road either, so we didn't really know where we were going a lot of the time. Um, so that bit was, uh, I felt quite un, quite un, unsafe there. Um, in Iran, I don't know, some of the roadblocks, I didn't feel safe sometimes. I, I it, it was, but that was probably that was probably about it. I mean, there were quite a few scary moments. I had riding my bike where people, you know, I I, I nearly got driven off off the road and all of that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. I, I think I just had this this. Um, I tried not to think about stuff like that really too much. I just sort of. Just dealt with it. Uh, you certainly can't do anything about it, so you just kind of have to <laughs> have to go. Um, so, which brings me to the loneliness must have been overwhelming. You know, just all this. You, a lot of this time, obviously, you made friends along the way, but a lot of it is just just you, and that's it. I mean, that's something that human nature is not meant to deal with. I did get incredibly lonely. Um, I really. And I think it was just the, the sort of hours and or days or weeks and weeks you spend just, I mean, riding across Australia was, 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 you know, it was very lonely. Um, and I think because the, you know, the countryside is so, it's, it's so boring. It's all the same for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, and so Australia, I did, but I'm actually quite good on my own. I, I'm, which is fortunate. Um, I'm, you know, I am quite, um, you know, I have all the, I don't know, I can't even, all the stuff I used to think of when I was riding, you know, I'd, I'd spend all the time, you know, working out how much, you know, petrol my bike was using and miles per gallon and if I went a bit faster and then I'd, I'd try it all at different speeds and then I'd try and work out if I if I w rode faster then it means I'd I'd spend less money on accommodation and I, I don't know I, I just and of course I had thoughts of, 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 of Alex um, going around in my head and and uh, making lists in my head of the things I needed to do to my bike I don't know. I just, it's never I just ending. Like Jake asked me, <laughs> I drive, I drive my, my, I have an old 911 that I drive a lot and only in North America is all I've driven on. But it's a lot of like, I'll take back roads across the country. And Jake is like, do you like driving alone? And I said, <laughs> I said, yes, I do. I think more people should spend more time alone and being alone. And I don't have, yeah. a, I don't have a radio. 
So it's just being alone with yourself. And that's all that's all there is. And I think you help develop your own personality. And I, I almost think I'm like defragmenting the hard drive of my mind <laughs> as I'm going through and doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's it's but it was odd because I did find I did find uh, sort of doing the whole trip um, kind of isolated me in many ways as well. Um, so, you know, because I, I, I sort of found or I felt as if I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't, it, you know, like, like my family didn't understand me, didn't, couldn't understand what I was doing or why I was doing it. Uh, my friends were the same. Uh, if I stopped at a kind of backpacker's lodge, I wasn't kind of part of the backpackers because I was on a motorbike. And I don't know. I always felt as if I didn't sort of fit in anywhere. I was, I was, I was, I was sort of quite isolated, which kind of added to my loneliness. I think even more. Um, and then when I got home, it was it was much the same again. You know, I, I couldn't. I, there was nobody I could talk to, nobody I could you know relate to. And I think that's a big difference now because people who, you know, people who travel now and do these trips because there's so many other people doing it and you know you, now you have these overland events and whatever all over the world horizons and all this kind of stuff you can it's very easy to you know to go to meetings to go to events and meet like-minded people who have done similar things well 35 years ago it just that didn't exist you didn't i mean i didn't apart from robert there was nobody in the world who i knew had experienced what i had gone through wow nobody and so there was this one person I had who could actually understand what I'd been through and und- and, and I could talk to. He was the only person I, I could really talk to. So you come back from this trip, you've been gone for years, and there's like this gap where everybody else has experienced something completely different than what you experienced. And it's almost like you reset who you are based on your experiences that you had. So you just didn't have anything to talk about with these people that were going to talk about how they had a bad experience on the subway. You know, so that's just. I know. Well, it, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the real shock to me when I got back was the fact that everybody's lives seemed to be exactly the same as they were when I left. <laughs> Absolutely nothing had changed to them. And yet for me. I'd, you know, I'd, I, I, I'd, you know, I'd lived like a hundred lives in the in the time that I was away, um, and I was a completely changed person. And the experiences that I that I'd gone through, the nobody could understand or actually relate to at all. So, how did you deal with the fact that you were done, that it was over? Well, that was difficult as well. I mean, obviously, there was a huge relief. Um, because I thought I've done it, um, but then trying to readjust, trying to work out what I was going to do next, and all this—it was incredibly difficult. And I got very depressed, um, and I—it uh, it probably took me about—I I was probably depressed for about six months to like a year, and then I managed to kind of—I mean, I—I I gave myself projects. I stripped my bike down and I rebuilt it, and all the rest of it, and I. I tried to give myself little projects when I got a job in an architectural practice, but I literally I just kept my head down and I just did the work and I just left at the end of the day. I didn't really engage <laughs> with anybody. I think they thought I was very strange of it. Um, 
And but then I slowly managed to, you know, to to get my life together. I suppose I went back and I finished off my architecture degree. Um, and then and then in, in 1988, I ended up finding this water tower. And then I kind of had another project. You know, it was another, wait, wait, wait. What, what do you another, mean water tower? Uh, it's um, it's it's a hundred and thirty foot high uh, brick building um, that was built by the Victorians to you know to hold water up, well basically to store water. And that's your home um, now. That's my home. That's where I live. That's that's um, very cool. That's that's awesome. Um, why do you and think it was it- a huge project? It was a massive project. So so that kind of occupied me for the next seven years. So why do you think it took so people why do you think it took people so long to come around to realize the the meaning of what you'd done? Because now you know there's there's tons of articles on you, there's lots of interviews and stuff like that. So at some point people were like, Whoa, this is pretty cool. What do you think changed in society from we don't care, my my tongue's in my typewriter to hey, <laughs> we want to do a film about you, let's do a book. What changed? Well, I think I think when I got back in the early 1980s, it was still very much the whole biking scene, certainly uh, in the UK. I don't know, you know, what it was like in America, but certainly in the UK, it was it was still a very kind of male-only uh, club. And, you know, women didn't really ride bikes or certainly big bikes. And women... And, and I don't, and I don't know. You should have went around the country back, or the whole world in a Vespa. Then you would have uh, gotten the worst. Well, but I, I can remember I sort of got back from my trip and I, uh, and I contacted some of the bike magazines because I thought that actually might be interested in printing some, you know, article about what I'd done. And I just got really got, got, you know, brushed off and, and, uh, that's um, a, that's a, unbelievable it, to me. Yeah. Uh, just unbelievable. Know, As like a then, journalist and a photographer, I just cannot figure it out. Yeah, but it was almost as if they, I, and, and I, I don't understand why, uh, but it was almost, I felt, as if they couldn't admit public, I mean, they couldn't admit that a woman had ridden around the world on a motorbike, let alone print it. Because they weren't the willing to do it, it themselves. Because they weren't willing to do it themselves. Hmm. And I mean, that, that, that might be completely wrong, and I've no idea, but that's the way it felt at the time. It was almost as if we cannot actually um, sort of acknowledge that a woman has actually managed to ride around the world on a motorbike. I don't, think, I don't think you're too far off. Um, so what did you learn most about yourself over, uh, over that time, and how has it stuck with you over the last 35 years or so? Yeah, I, well, I think the most important thing I learned is that I can I can deal with absolutely anything. There is not a problem I can't I can't solve in some way. And I think you know you you learn to think out of the box. You learn to um, you know you just have to sometimes approach problems in a completely different uh, way in order to to, to solve them. And and I I'm very self self you know reliant. I'm I I don't I'm not afraid of anything. Um, 
I, there's nothing I'm, you know, I don't feel I can tackle or take on. I mean, when I bought the water tower, for example, because it was a, no one had ever converted a water tower of this size or whatever before. And everybody told me, oh, you can't do it. You, it'll never, it's exactly the same as all the stuff I was told before I went on my bike trip. Oh, you'll never do it. Um, because of all the regulations and the fire and the means of escape and overlooking, you know, problem, 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 problem. That's all I ever heard. And, and I just ignored it. And I thought, I will find a way. I will sort it out. I will find a way and I will do it. And I did. And it took me a year and a half to get all the, you know, the paperwork sorted out. Um, against the odds, um, but I did it, and I just overcame each of their problems one at a time. And and I think had I not done the trip, I don't think I would have had the 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 sort of inner strength and self confidence, if you know what I mean, to to you know have tackled it and taken it on. And I had absolutely no doubt I was going to do it. I just this the one hundred percent uh, believing in myself and I think if you have that um, you can tackle anything in life and I think because I had to do that and because I learned that I can do that when I was on my journey I, had, I mean I faced you know real problems I had to sort out and I was entirely on, on my own you know there's no safety net that people have now there's no mobile phone there was nothing I was absolutely on my own and, you know, the butt stopped with me. And that really makes, it just sort of makes you think in a, in a particular way. And it does make you very strong. Um, and, and I think that has seen me through it, or everything I've done in my life. You know, I've been through, you know, really hard times in my life. And since my, my trip, and I've always managed to pull myself through. I've managed to kind of, you know, sort of draw on that inner strength um, to get myself through it. I think um, one of the important I, things about what you've done is you've given you've given people um, something to aspire to, and I think that human nature needs needs the drive to to aspire to things. They need to be able to find meaning in life. And I think you show have shown people, um, obviously an extreme example of the things you can do to find aspiration and meaning in your life. Um, I honestly don't even think that it's possible to take an adventure like you did today. I don't think it's possible anymore. I think technologies and societies moved too far. Um, it's too far removed from that for them to have the same experience, unless you're really dedicated to removing yourself, buying an old bike and <laughs> leaving your phone at home which I don't think anybody's going to do. Um, but I just, mm. I think it's, it's wonderful that you did this and gave something for people to look up to because it gives them an opportunity to be like, that can be done. I might not be able to do that, but I aspire to do that. I aspire to have that in my life. And then maybe you'll be able to give some of the, some people, some of the emotion that you have where you can do anything, you can solve those problems. And I think um, mm. giving that to basically humanity, I think that's a very important and, and wonderful thing that you've done. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've sort of had a huge amount of letters and emails from people who, you know, they've really, you know, they've said just reading your book has really helped me. You know, I, I've, I've always been afraid of, of not, of not, of, of, you know, of doing this or doing that. And I read your book and I just went out and did it, and that's, that's absolutely amazing. 
I, I think that's that's incredible. And uh, on that note, I think I'm I'm going to let you go because I don't think it's going to get any any better than that. I really, <laughs> really, really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I've you know, you've inspired me greatly as somebody who likes to travel over the last several years. I've really started to do more and and learning about what you've done um, has inspired me as well. So um, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Elspeth. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Jake, that was that was amazing. That was amazing. I'm, wow. I've I literally have a slight crush on her. <laughs> um, you know, just seeing seeing all the photography that she brought back, which is all great and wonderful. And I and I bought her book and it's awesome. Um, I, I encourage everybody to hop on uh, hop on Amazon. Look up her name. Uh, Elspeth Beard. You can take a look at her book and uh, maybe pick it up or right from her website, which is Elspeth E L. S-P-E-T-H-B-E-A-R-D.com. And we'll link this in the show notes as well. So um, make sure you stop over there and, and check it out. I think it would be it would be to your great benefit. Um, with that, I want to remind everybody to head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you can. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Take care. Bye-bye.